You're listening to Rocket Night. This is Sharice with Rock at Night. We're here in Brixton, UK, and I am interviewing John Clay. What shall I say about John Clay? He is an author. He is a producer of music videos. He does it all. <laughs> so we're here to find out about him. He's been working with Rocket Night for maybe about six years or so and is a, a columnist and a contributor to Rocket Night. And he always has kind of very interesting, political, edgy articles and interviews to introduce to us. So, John, we're here to find out who you are. I remember meeting you maybe about six years ago or so when you were doing the ambush iPad interviews with people. How did you start doing that? Well, um, yeah, sure. Thank you. And thanks for letting me uh, take up some of your time whilst you're in the UK. How did I start doing that? Okay, so... First and foremost, um, before I started to record bands using my iPad and interviewing them at shows, I was in a band myself. Um, and that was a fundamentally uh, life-changing experience because uh, I got to know a bit more about what was promoting myself um, as an artist and how that would affect you know how people would see me because essentially you you get to a point where you realize that you're not just doing it because of the music you're trying to have a uh an expression of your social conscience you know so that was like the first like say instance of me being part of any particular scene or scenes um and at a certain point in time it became very evident to myself and the band that it was time to stop <laughs> um, for so many reasons. Um, but to stay on track with your actual initial question, um, I couldn't quite let the idea go of being involved in subculture. And so um, I would find myself writing about bands for various different blogs. Um, and at the time, we're now talking 2012, 2013, um, there was only so much traction that those items were getting. And uh, I can't quite remember the first time. There's been so many times since. But at some point, I got my iPad out and I was asking a band questions after a gig. Um, they were quite inebriated and so was I. So, yeah, the drink played its part in our discussion. <laughs> and I put it online and then that became a thing. So that's, I think that's the best way to answer that question for now. That's how I started off doing that kind of thing. It just was a continuation of my interest in people. Yeah. Back to the band, what type of genre of music were you playing and did you play an instrument or sing? Okay, um, we were called Colossus and we played 
a form of, as much as the term may have various different meanings for other people, grunge rock, you know, um, quite a few effects were used. I did vocals, lead vocals and guitar. Um, and my best friend, Rob, who I actually saw a few hours ago, was still in contact. Uh, he played bass and he also contributed vocals. Um, and it's odd because even though the band technically isn't like a live unit anymore, there are plans which I'm sure Rocket Knight will be happy to exhibit once they are more, well, <laughs> finished recording. <laughs> now, your I, your ambush iPad interviews kind of evolved into a whole new career because you produce music videos, you are into the whole, under, well, you have been into the whole underground music scene in London for some time. Uh, tell us about how you got into the music video filming. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, at some point, me filming bands, talking about them off stage, felt exploitative. Didn't want to do it. Um, and I've been quite, what's the word when you, yeah, quite contrary regarding that. As you know, I'm now interviewing bands again. <laughs> so at that point in time, um, we're now talking 2016, 2015 or so, I started to phase out interviewing people because I found filming the bands from off stage felt felt good it felt more um more honest it meant me putting my ego and myself out of the frame and just seeing what they were doing um and just filming them um from off stage soon turned into a me wanting to understand the the clarity the depth perception uh the the blocking of actually filming them making sure you can see the drummer for instance um making sure that when the singer stops singing that you go to the guitar itself you know I, I wanted to start filming it as though it was a cinematic experience um, and after a while you get frustrated with the idea that there's people there which is silly because they're there to enjoy the music so you start thinking about how to do it in a more controlled environment a live session um, and so I did quite a lot of those with uh, Margot's living room which was basically a, a video series where we'd interview sorry we'd film bands doing like a song that was about to come out or had come out in a way where there was only one like particular angle that like the camera would move between the actual performers. So when I say angle, I mean one shot. There was no cutaways. So you got a sense that what they were playing wasn't something that it, they'd done 17 billion times and took the best parts out of it. It wasn't Frankenstein that way, you know? It was them playing authentically throughout the entire song. And that had a certain amount of impact upon I'd say the people that would immediately be, you know, finding out about these bands or indeed the people actually taking part in the recording of it. It was quite a fundamentally powerful experience. <laughs> you do all the editing as well? For my videos, it depends on the project. There's some videos where I believe that the editing that I could do isn't necessarily going to deliver what it is that the band I think is trying to communicate. And there were some videos where it's like, I don't need to have someone involved with this. Um, for the live sessions, there was no real need for editing because it was all one shot. You know, color correction stuff came later. Um, but yeah, I was definitely learning in public. Yeah. So. I just saw that you did a video for Stash Magnetic. Uh, are you working on any other videos at the moment? Wow. Um, 
Am I working? I'm always working on videos like this recent pandemic. Please not let there not be another one. It's changed a lot of people's lives. Like obviously for me, um, being a filmmaker means that being in the same room with lots of people hasn't been something I've been able to do. So to give an example, in 2019, there was like 23 videos that came out from the production company that I run, um, which is mainly me and anyone who I find is interested in doing work with me and it's you know applicable for that delivery that we talked about. So that's about 23 videos that came out, but I could have released at least 34 because there was other stuff being worked on. In 2020, only 10 videos came out because I had stopped being able to film. This year, Stash Magnetic and um, another band, Shattercones, released a video through me. That's just two videos in one year. So um, I'll tell you what I'm skirting around. I don't normally like to talk about what I'm working on rather until it's done, only because anything could happen. I mean, I can risk talking about my band <laughs> because I'm that person. I'll be there making sure that happens. But until those other videos are out, it wouldn't be right for me to say anything about them. Now, your persona has always been Clark Kent. And I've also noticed that you have Chemically Sinister as um, either a moniker or a business name. Uh, tell me more about this so that I understand what is Clark Kent and what is Chemically Sinister. Okay. Um, always goes back to the music. At some point, um, when I was in the band, taking photos of me was not particularly something that I thought was beneficial um, because I was really, and so the rest of the band, really into a lot of early Beatles Hamburg period. So we'd always wear like the black jackets and the black jeans. Um, but my skin tone was not a valuable situation <laughs> when it came to certain photography. So at some point, at that point, I was still having to do other jobs apart from doing music. Um, I was doing street fundraising and I saw like this stall where they were selling a like, Superman t-shirt. I thought, wouldn't that be something to wear? <laughs> if I wore that, maybe I'd be seen a bit more easier in photos. Um, and I think I was a lot less diplomatic then because I just turned up and said, guys, I'm wearing this. <laughs> and like, they were like, okay, cool, fine, whatever. And then after a while, we all started wearing superhero stuff. So I got not just blue jeans, but I got like a yellow belt. I got red Dr. Martin boots. I got a red jacket. And so it just became part of my persona, I guess. Um, and my first forays into, like, say, uh, published writing were surrounding a character that was kind of a meta version of myself. Um, a bit of a chancer, a bit of a, an antagonist in a way. Uh, now everyone's, like, doing, like, say, um, anti-heroic kind of literature. But back then, at least through MySpace, um, the character Spiderfingers was born. So that was there. Um, so at this point in time, I kind of wear this stuff because it's just habitual. It's not even a conscious decision. Sometimes I forget I've got it on. I mean, when you noticed it, when we met, it's like, oh yeah, of course, cause I wear this. Um, but yeah, chemically sinister was my attempt to separate this whole Clark Kent persona from the actual work, but still have a recognizable, um, IP, um, so to speak. And that came about through, um, there was a shoot where I can't remember why it was said, um, but like uh, the photographer, a really lovely guy, uh, Simon, he suggested that what we were doing was rather sinister and it's very chemical. It's something along those lines. I said, yeah, chemically sinister. I said, yeah, that's what we'll call it, you know, 
we'll call this this thing this collective whatever it is chemically sinister um so i hope that's some way of an explanation <laughs> you've always been in touch with the underground music scene here in london you introduced us to a lot of different bands uh fat white family uh Lee, uh stash magnetic and other bands how the heck do you have your pulse on everything that's going on here in London? Well, um, I may have to do a bit of a myth um, demolishing mode thing because I don't think, in fact, I know my my thumb being on the pulse, so to speak, or my ear to the ground, it's not what it used to be and for good reason. Um, as you get older, as, as I've got older, I can't speak for anyone else, but I think um, I've become a lot more complacent in my investigation so a lot of the bands that i i go hey check this out they found me you know um so not to take anything away from uh those recent bands but obviously if you have a certain reputation as to being in a certain place then like-minded souls will find you um so how do i keep up the pace of knowing new bands not through enough investigation it's just there's a lot of stuff that will come into my inbox um, but also, as you rightly pointed out, anything that is even vaguely political will either attract or repress or, or repel some people. Um, and so, thankfully, those like-minded people have had a certain amount of understanding as to why it's important that marginalized voices have their say, you know, whether it be race or queer uh, following identities. Those people will have a uh, a sort of um, comfortable attitude when it comes to me asking maybe some of the more difficult questions because they know it's not going to be uh, rephrased or co-opted for the brand that is Chemically Sinister or Joy Zine or Rock at Night or Public Pressure. The list goes on. Um, but I think that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> John, you do a lot of uh, politically influenced interviews with people and you're i noticed that you're interested in protest music tell me about where this comes from uh the root of your interest in politics sure um thank you for asking i've had uh well quite a lucky experience when it comes to meeting people who have the ability of challenging my perception um let alone any say um, lack of investigation or internalized racism on a scene or scenes that are predominantly um, normally male Caucasian and I'm not saying that those things are to be demonized in any way shape or form but it's very easy for the mechanisms surrounding those scenes whether it be media um, or audiences not to consider that that's not the only you know way of being in the world and thus we could be missing out on stories um, it goes way back obviously with um, People say using Elvis as a, a an inspirational force, but forgetting what was influencing Elvis, if that makes sense. So current day issues um, that normally come into play. I mean, when's the last time you saw someone, say, who identifies as transgender on the TV talking about what it is that truly concerns them? Yeah, we're normally talking about a sensationalized idea of that, like whether it be access to toilets or um, athleticism. We're not talking about how it's harder for them to get the medical supplies that they need because the system is built up against them. So if I have an artist who 
identifies as that, then that's what I'll talk about as well as the record that they're doing, if possible. And even then, I have to be very um, careful about how that's done because it could be easy to seemingly co-opt those ideas or that presence to give my own brand some kind of uh, legitimate um, standing in that world. Whereas I'm only uh, a tourist, so to speak, and even then I'm having to be invited into it by that person or persons. Um, but where does it come from? It comes from the people that you know. Um, I was very lucky to meet a producer called Margot Broom, who, and she'll hate this, but I do see her as a mentor. And if she's listening to this, she probably hates me a lot anyway. Um, but yeah, Margot, I had to say it. They asked me, so there's the answer. Um, but yeah, there you go. <laughs> In a sense, you were giving a voice to those that don't have one. You know, the marginalized society uh, seems to have a close spot in your heart and do you that's what I see that you're giving them a an opportunity to speak out am I correct um in an ideal world then if someone could be doing what I'm doing but not necessarily have um not just the the need to find out what it is but to experience it in the safe space great i mean how to make that even less of a word salad put it this way um i don't like the idea of giving them a voice because they already have one what i'd like to do is in the space where i'm talking about bands and all the other things that are you know part of that whether it be photographers or videographers and whatnot making sure that they don't have what it is they have to say being as i said you know uh edited or or erased or sanded down just so it can fit in you know um yeah that's the closest i can get to it for now <laughs> it's very odd talking through a machine this way <laughs> a little bit about your background because uh, a friend of a mutual friend of ours said that john clay is an enigma so we know you for basically f for the last number of years but I mean, did you grow up here in Brixton or London, or what's a little bit about your your background? Um, this is interesting. Um, I think the reason why I could be seen as an enigma is because of the way I use social media, um, and that's our mutual friend knows us mostly through that. Yes. Um, so what I'll say is this: my background, in terms of growing up, was in West London, and there's not much to do there like um if it was one of the reasons why i really got into nirvana is because some of the stuff that kurt was saying about his logging town was being that there was nothing to do there which can lead people in sometimes the wrong direction in that you may affect yourself or you may um seek out different identities because for you you're you're trying to figure out how you could be if you weren't in a place which kind of just suggests that you're supposed to just kind of do a b educational um uh, say facilities and then go off to a job and then at some point find yourself married of kids right which you know you don't have to come from a time where there's seemingly nothing going on to feel that you have to be part of that but it's easier for that to be forced upon you um, but yeah at some point here now being in South London was a much more fruitious kind of experience I wouldn't have discovered certain bands um, on the ground level if it wasn't for my moving to South London there's so much going on here um, despite the gentrification, there are still many different um, opportunities, whether it be like a, a gig at a housing co-op or a house party. 
you know um whereas when it comes to west london you've got restaurants and car showrooms there's no real culture there you know i'll never be one of those people that takes a photograph next to a really expensive car and suggests that this should be everyone's lifestyle i think that's quite toxic but it can also be quite fun if you point it out in an ironic way which i have done <laughs> last question and just for fun do you have any hobbies or anything that somebody would be totally blown away knowing that you do this or an interest that somebody would say oh my god no way um i would say i'm not sure if you can necessarily call it a hobby of mine but whenever i've endeavored to do so then it is a transformative experience. I love just walking aimlessly through a green area, which may seem at odds with the whole rock and roll thing, but that, if anything, that it should be rock and roll for want of a better way of using the terminology. There's this really staid or fundamentalist idea that if you're going to be off the rails, you're supposed to be getting completely trashed every night with a million syringes coming out of your arm the next morning. And I've never really been totally down with that as being a way of finding oneself maybe it worked for Jim Morrison but I just think it sounds very expensive and painful so <laughs> I would rather you know like I don't drink anymore and it's like there was no like addictive issue there I just didn't like the idea of capital saying that if you have five volumes of said liquid then that is part of a lifestyle that's not only sustainable but is um, in some way going to be freeing I don't find that freeing as an experience. You know, I, I don't want to have to pay for my emotions. You know, that's, that's the t-shirt ending of this. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, John. And uh, we look forward to getting more interesting interviews and material from you. You're listening to Rock at Night. The introductory song, Get On Down, is from blues artist Billy, Billy Bass Alford. Look for his music at ReverbNation.com.